Welcome to the Points of Discussion podcast series. This series presents dynamic and spirited discussions on high priority topics related to the research being done in each of PEDRA's focused study groups. Before we begin, it's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. In our first mini-series, Is iPledge Working? A Conversation on Risk Management and Isotretinoin, we'll take a look at the history of the program and how it affects clinicians and patients. Your host for this series is Dr. Leah Layler. Dr. Layler is a practicing pediatric dermatologist at the Medical College of Wisconsin and is vice chair of PEDRA's Acne and HS-focused study group. Take it away, Dr. Layler. Thank you, I'm excited to be here. Welcome to episode one, A History of iPledge with our special guest, Dr. Jill Lindstrom. Dr. Lindstrom is a practicing dermatologist at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. She was previously the deputy director of the Division of Dermatology and Dental Products at the FDA, where she worked for 17 years. We're gonna be speaking to her today about the history of iPledge to get a better understanding of the program and why it's important. So what is iPledge? iPledge is a risk mitigation system meant to prevent people who are pregnant from starting isotretinoin and to prevent those who are on isotretinoin from getting pregnant. So the question is, is iPledge doing its job? I'd like to start off our discussion with Dr. Lindstrom. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you ended up at the FDA? Sure. I trained in the military where I had the opportunity to participate in vaccine development research at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. I then went on to a few years in private practice, after which I decided I would like to um, gain some regulatory credentials, possibly with an eye to moving on to the pharmaceutical industry. And so I took a position as a medical officer in the dermatology division at the Food and Drug Administration. I planned only to stay for a year or two, but I found the work fascinating and blinked my eyes and 17 years had gone by. It does seem to happen that way, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Now, is this a job that you applied for or did somebody reach out to you saying, we think you'd be a good fit? No, I applied for it. I had attended several sessions at the AAD annual meeting um, where FDA medical officers uh, spoke about their work. And so I was intrigued. Fascinating. I love hearing stories about how people got to their careers. So could you please tell me a little bit about what a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy or REMS program really is? Sure. A REMS program is a drug safety program that FDA can require for drugs with serious safety concerns 
to help ensure that the benefits of the medication outweigh its risk. The Food and Drug Administration Amendments Act, or FDA, of 2007 provides the statutory authority for REMS programs. And REMS can consist of a number of different elements, such as a medication guide or patient package insert, a communication plan, a tool called Elements to Ensure Safe Use or Performance-Linked Elements. They also include an, an implementation system and a timetable for or schedule for assessments. And you mentioned that REMS programs are for medications that have serious risks. What types of serious risks tend to require REMS programs? Teratogenicity, um, such as is the case with isotretinoin, but other serious risks as well, hepatotoxicity, renal toxicity, um, addiction potential. Those are some examples. Thank you. And so you mentioned teratogenicity for isotretinoin. Is that why we need the REMS program for isotretinoin, which is now known as iPledge? Yes. iPledge was instituted to address the fact that isotretinoin is a potent teratogen. I see. And what are the specific risks um, associated with the teratogenicity of isotretinoin? There's an increase for exposed pregnancies. There's an increased risk for spontaneous abortion and premature birth. Exposed pregnancies may have major malformations, such as craniofacial, cardiac, thymic, or CNS malformations. There may be neurodevelopmental delays. And there's a high frequency of effect in exposed pregnancies. Data from the 80s collected by Lammer found that approximately 30% of infants who were exposed during the first half of pregnancy had major malformations consistent with what we now call retinoid embryopathy. And he saw developmental delays at a higher rate um, in those without anatomic defects or who were exposed in the latter half of pregnancy. And indeed, the data from the first five years of the iPledge program from pregnancies evaluated in the registry found that of those pregnancies for whom the, the for which the outcome is known, about 20% had congenital anomalies consistent with retinoid embryopathy. Additionally, there's not a known safe dose or exposure window during pregnancy, whether the exposure is early or late in the pregnancy, there is still risk to um, the developing fetus. Those are some serious problems, obviously understandable why one of these REMS programs might be necessary for a drug at, with such severe risks. There are other medications that dermatologists prescribe that have similar um, teratogenic risks, right? So I'm thinking of things like methotrexate and acetretin, among others. Why don't these medicines also have a REMS program? That's a good question. When FDA approaches um, risk mitigation, they try to take the, the least burdensome approach that they can. And they generally move in an iterative fashion 
For instance, most drugs, the risk with most drugs can be controlled by, can be addressed by or managed through prescription status, professional and patient labeling and routine pharmacovigilance. But if the risk um, is not adequately managed with those measures, then FDA will move on to progressively uh, more involved measures using progressively more complex tools to manage the risk. Additionally, when the Food and Drug Administration Amendments Act was passed in 2007, FDA was given um, six statutory factors, six factors to consider under the statute when considering when to implement a REMS. And those factors are the seriousness of the adverse reaction, the expected benefit of the drug, the seriousness of the disease or condition that it treats, whether or not the drug is a new molecular entity, the duration of treatment, and the size of the population expected to use the drug. And they weigh those various factors to determine whether these routine risk management measures, prescription status, professional and patient labeling, and routine pharmacovigilance will be adequate or whether they need additional tools. When you think about isotretinoin, it's a potent teratogen. There's no known safe dose, no known window um, when the drug does not present a risk to a pregnant woman. And the population um, for the labeled indication, which is the, which is the indication that, that FDA considers primarily, um, is a young, healthy population of, of reproductive age, largely reproductive age. And so these factors, um, I, I think, contribute to why a REMS is in place for isotretinoin, but not for methotrexate. Additionally, various measures were tried. The REMS wasn't the first uh, step in seeking to manage this risk. Oh, can you tell me more about some of the early steps that were used? Isotretinoin was originally approved for marketing in 1982, and there were almost yearly or every other year, there were iterative steps taken to try to address the risk of teratogenicity. When the drug first came on the market, it was suspected to be a teratogen um, based on animal models, but there was no human data. And so it was marketed with um, a contraindication for pregnancy and um, information in warning and precautions section of labeling, but it was not long after uh, marketing that, that um, the first exposed pregnancies occurred. I think it's helpful when you're, there were there are many iterations, many steps along the way as FDA um, worked with the sponsor at the time, initially was Hoffman LaRoche, uh, prior to the introduction of the generic manufacturers. But I think it's helpful to kind of look at the history of risk management by dividing it sort of into um, eras, I call them eras or iterations. And there, there really were four. There was the early marketing, um, and that was from the time of approval till 1988. Then there was the 
Accutane Pregnancy Prevention Program, which was in place from 1988 to 2002. This was followed by the sticker program, sort of proverbially known as the sticker program. The Accutane program went by the um, acronym of SMART. The generics were, I think, Spirit, Impart, and Alert. And that era would have been 2002 to 2005. And then 2006, I pledge was implemented. So just going back over those eras, um, in the early marketing, they used labeling, they increased the stringency of the labeling, they went from a contraindication, warning and precaution, they bolded language, they added a boxed warning, sometimes called a black box, uh, but a boxed warning, putting the risk information up front and in an outlined box to increase its prominence. They sent out dear doctor and dear pharmacist letters. We call them dear healthcare provider now, but at the time they were dear doctor and dear pharmacist letters. And they provided red stickers for the pharmacists to affix to the prescription container. The blister packs did not exist at that time, uh, warning patients about the risk uh, of teratogenicity. Despite these measures, pregnancy exposures continued to accrue. So in 1988, um, Hoffman LaRoche proposed the Accutane Pregnancy Prevention Program, and that was novel uh, at the time and introduced revised labeling, targeted education and outreach tools like Dear um, Healthcare Provider Letters, Patient Brochures. There were reminder, what we call reminder tools, um, patient-informed consents. The blister packaging was introduced, the familiar um, do not get pregnant or avoid pregnancy icon, the little cartoon figure of the woman with the red circle and the slash, and a recommendation for a limitation of the amount dispensed. Uh, just don't dispense more than 30 days. In addition, there was an assessment. Uh, there were assessment elements. There were um, surveys uh, to um, evaluate the program. And these assessment tools revealed over time that the program was um, not being fully utilized by prescribers or patients. And that um, in addition, pharmacovigilance uh, revealed continued pregnancy exposures. And so the FDA convened an advisory committee in 2000 to discuss the outcomes from the pregnancy prevention program and the continued risk from isotretinoin despite these efforts from the sponsor. And it was at that advisory committee that the current goals of the iPledge program were um, promulgated. So that 2000 advisory committee um, stated that the goals for risk management of isotretinoin and their aspirational are that no woman should begin isotretinoin therapy pregnant and no pregnancy should occur while a woman is taking isotretinoin. And at that time in 2000, the advisory committee recommended um, that there be registration of all patients and all prescribers, implementation of a preg pregnancy registry, and that there be linkage of prescription dispensing to evidence of an of adequate pregnancy testing. So really what that committee re 
recommended six years before I pledge came into existence was a performance linked system similar to what we have now. Now FDA normally follows the recommendations of its advisory committees. Advisory committees are, are um, made up of members of the, um, of the public with recognized expertise. So there um, were academic and community dermatologists and there were, I believe in each of the advisory committees at which isotretinoin risk management um, has been discussed, there was either a um, sitting or a previous AAD president, president um, on the committee. So the FDA tries to get um, good representation of the relevant uh, medical specialty. And the committee uh, took seriously um, the, the public health um, cost from pregnancies exposure, pregnancy exposures to isotretinoin. And they made these, uh, I think, quite, um, quite significant recommendations. Despite those recommendations, Hoffman LaRoche and, or I should say this, this sponsor, which at the time was Hoffman, Hoffman LaRoche and the FDA were confronted with what, what at the time appeared to be insoluble privacy issues with implementing those recommendations. And so um, working together came up with the sticker program, which for the innovator uh, went by the acronym SMART. And then when the generics uh, subsequently uh, uh, were approved for marketing, uh, had their own acronym SPIRIT alert and in part, I believe they were. At any rate, the sticker program um, involved augmented patient and provider education, a medication guide um, had to be dispensed with each, um, with each prescription. It continued all the elements of the pregnancy prevention program, but added revised labeling, recommended a second pregnancy test um, within five days of um, within the first five days of menses prior to initiation of Accutane therapy. It included reminder tools um, like the yellow qualification sticker that would go on the prescription that would assure the, the pharmacist that a pregnancy test had been um, performed. And then there were assessment tools, um, a patient survey and a prescriber survey. So this was a Again, novel at the time, and I think a very good faith effort on the part of the sponsors. However, when the sponsor and FDA looked at the assessment data from these surveys and the ongoing pharmacovigilance data, it was clear that the sticker program, despite it, the effort that went into it and its good intentions, was not achieving what it had intended. There was low participation in the survey. The sticker proved to be an imperfect, an imperfect surrogate for pregnancy testing. And there was not a decline in exposed pregnancies in the survey cohort. And so again, FDA convened an advisory committee, this time in 2004. And the committee, again, um, and, I, and I believe it might've been, um, a universal vote. I mean, it might have been unanimous, a unanimous 
uh, recommendation from all of the committee members that that there be registration of all patients, that there be a, a more rigorous program. Registration of all patients, registration of all prescribers, registration of all pharmacies, and tight linkage of pregnancy testing to dispensing of the drug, as well as establishment of a pregnancy registry um, for the purpose of doing root cause analysis for why the exposures um, occurred. And it was at this time, due to advances um, in our understanding of HIPAA, uh, the sponsor was able to develop a program that, that fulfilled these recommendations. And they presented that to the FDA uh, who approved the, the sponsor's proposal that became what we know as I pledge. That all of that was not only in an effort to obviously avoid the important, you know, teratogenicity risk um, and exposing pregnant people to the medication, but also right to keep the medication on the market because there was, at certain points, I understand major risk that the medication would be pulled from the market without major strategies and changes and how this was done, correct? There certainly were voices, both outside and within FDA, that advocated for removal of the drug uh, from the market. Uh, and those voices were stating that the, the risks and the um, public health burden of exposed pregnancies um, was so substantial that it could not that it could not justify or the benefits could not justify these risks and burdens. Um, there were also uh, voices within FDA and of course uh, voices outside of FDA um, that recognized the really life-changing um, benefits and impact of the drug. Uh, so there 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 is a tension and and that tension continues today. That's I think in the statute, um, an FDA has a responsibility to ensure that the drugs, I mean, that's, that's a how, that's the legal system that, it, or that's the, the um, statute and regulations that exist um, in our country. The responsibility is upon FDA to ensure that the benefits continue to outweigh the risks. Um, Yes. And that's, that brings up such an important point, I think, right? In dermatology, so frequently, the conditions that we treat are considered cosmetic and their impact on patients' quality of life or psychological well-being um, or social interactions are very unfortunately not taken into account as part of their medical benefit or, or of medical concern. And so I definitely hear that concern of, you know, what are we treating here as the seriousness of the condition of acne? Many people, I think, who don't see patients with severe acne um, and, and the impact that has on their lives, I think they, they don't quite understand how impactful this disease can be. Mm -hmm. 
Indeed. Within FDA, um, iPledge was approved under something called Subpart H. And that's a, a part of the regulation that is intended for, uh, uh, that addresses drugs that are intended for a, to treat a serious or life-threatening condition. And because the approval of the, um, at the time of approval, it was a risk map. Um, it wasn't until the 2007 law of um, that it got the moniker REMS, but risk map or REMS, because it was approved under subpart H, um, there's a, a regulatory recognition that um, severe recalcitrant nodular acne, which is the um, labeled indication, is a serious condition. And I think that that is helpful um, in that, that though there are voices that would diminish that, um, its approval is under subpart H. That's fascinating and not something I was aware of. Thank you for explaining that. So at this point, we've talked about the history of REMS programs. We've talked about how iPledge came to be and why iPledge may need a REMS program or why FDA believes that iPledge needs a REMS program. Can you tell me, is it better? Is iPledge an improvement upon the former systems? Is it working? That's a, that's a, a challenging and um, very Im important question. When FDA approved iPledge in 2006, they acknowledged it would be difficult to compare the data post iPledge to pre iPledge. It would be difficult to assess, not impossible, but difficult to assess the impact of the changes that were introduced in 2006. Why? Because pregnancy, um, because the ascertainment of um, the adverse reaction that we're talking about, the pregnancy exposures was incomplete. It's incomplete under iPledge, but it was very incomplete prior to iPledge. We didn't really have, um, we didn't, it's not we didn't really, but we, we, we did not have an accurate uh, denominator. And so it's difficult to say, in one sense, it may be difficult to say whether it's working. If you look at, say, numbers of pregnancy exposures. An additional difficulty if you take that approach, I mean, the goals are that no woman who is pregnant be started on the drug and that no um, person who's taking isotretinoin become pregnant. So if you, if you look at the, the uh, impact of the program based uh, on the framework of the goals, you're also left with the uncomfortable um, question of what would be success? How many pregnancy exposures are okay? Will we tolerate? How many women or how many people who are pregnant being started on isotretinoin is acceptable? 
before we need to intervene or take the drug off the market. And, and that's, you know, that's a, how could we say any would be acceptable? In 2007 and 2011, um, FDA had two additional advisory committees to discuss um, the iPledge program uh, at one year and five years out. And in both instances, small changes were being proposed for iPledge and FDA felt it important that those changes be um, presented for public discussion. And it also was an opportunity for the sponsors to provide an update on the um, outcomes that had been observed in the program. And in the 2011 advisory committee meeting, um, Kathy O'Connell, a dermatologist, she's now retired from the FDA, but in her presentation, she, she raised this issue and suggested that that we might look at the impact or the success or lack of success of iPledge in a different way by looking at whether there were any pregnancies, exposures that resulted from lack of, of education of a patient, whether there were any that could have been prevented by adequate information or whether there were any that could have been prevented by um, good clinical practice. And if you look at iPledge and the outcomes from that perspective, we might say that iPledge has had a salutary impact. So I, I don't have the figures in front of me, but people can go to the FDA's website and go to the advisory committee record and look at the data on um, from the PPP, the Pregnancy Prevention Program, or the SMART program. And those surveys, those instruments, imprecise as they were, did show that women were not always um, aware or informed about the um, teratogenic risk of isotretinoin and pregnancy testing was not always performed. When you look at the data uh, and the only data that I can discuss is the data that was publicly presented um, at those meetings, 2007 and 2011. It's really, it's really, I think, very impressive that in the high 90s and at one point even 100% of women were meaningfully educated about the teratogenic risk from isotretinoin and the need to avoid pregnancy. And while there have been rare occasions where someone is, has deliberately sought, has falsified a pregnancy um, report. In, in truly the vast majority of instances, a pregnancy test has been performed. And so in that way, I think there has been some success. What research do you feel would need to be done to get a better understanding of whether or not the program is officially working? Uh, the last advisory committee on iPledge, of which I'm aware, was in 2011. And that was 10 years ago. The sponsors are required to, to provide reports annually 
to the Food and Drug Administration. I think that it would be a benefit to the public health if this information was made available to the public, both professionals and patients. And one way that this could be done, perhaps the only way of which I'm aware, is through an advisory committee. In the past, whenever any changes were made to I pledge, an advisory committee was held so that there could be public discussion and that provided a venue for the companies to update the public and provide data on the impact of iPledge. And I think it is reasonable for the public to know what the impact of the program has been. I'm speaking of data from 10 years ago because that's all that is available. So I think that um, a first step that I would like see, to see is that the, the um, wealth of information that is available be made available to a broader audience than FDA reviewers and the sponsors themselves. A little bit of clarity might help. I agree. Well, Dr. Lindstrom, thank you so much. This has been incredibly instructive and helpful in my understanding of iPledge and REMS programs and how the FDA works. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. This has been episode one of three in our Acne Points of Discussion mini-series. Thank you to Dr. Jill Lindstrom for providing such valuable insights into the iPledge program and its history. Thank you to Dr. Leah Layler for hosting such an engaging discussion. And finally, I would like to thank the Points of Discussion program sponsors, AbV Inc., Eli Lilly and Company, and Sanofi Genzyme and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their generous support of this independent medical program. In our next episode, Dr. Alona Frieden will discuss the impact of the iPledge program on patients and providers. Be sure to subscribe to Pedra Pearls in Google, iTunes, or Spotify to get the latest episodes. You can also access this podcast as well as other educational programming in the Pedra app available for both Apple and Android users. Feel free to leave us a comment. And if you have questions, you can contact us at info at Stay tuned for episode two. PEDRA is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty.